you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Studios. Hi, everybody. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. I am now in Park City, Utah. That's the home of the Sundance Film Festival. Well, it had been until the pandemic canceled the last two gatherings and turned them into virtual affairs. This year, though, audiences are back and I'm back too. Now, if I can only find my mittens. In this week's episode, a wide-ranging conversation I had before I left LA with three friends and collaborators who also all happen to be Oscar-winning filmmakers. We are in a decade where streaming came to maturity. It coincided with a massive world epidemic. We cannot know where the coin is going to land, if it's going to be heads or tails this year or next year. It'll take a decade to know where we're going. That's writer-director Guillermo del Toro. You'll hear more from him later in the show, along with Alejandro gonzalez Inarritu and Alfonso Cuaron. But first, here's my conversation about Sundance with KPCC's Sharon McNary, who is sitting in for regular Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. Welcome, John. Great to see you, Sharon. Well, thank you. You don't look too bundled up right now, but I know you're off to the mountains of Utah, most probably not to ski and all that fresh powder. What else is happening in Park City? Well, I am not going to ski. I remember a time when I was able to. It just so happens something's going on up there. I'm going to give you an audio hint. Rose and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the everywhere I've looked at clouds that way I really I really need to compose myself for a second John um, you're tearing up I am every time I see this scene or hear this performance I start sobbing it's a clip from Amelia Jones singing and also performing sign language for Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now it's from the movie Coda you might recall that writer-director Sean Hader's film won a little prize about a year ago. It's called the Best Picture Oscar at the Academy Awards, but CODA also debuted at the Sundance Film Festival, and that's where I am headed. The festival runs from today to the following Sunday, and a very interesting footnote, Amelia Jones, the star of CODA, has not one but two movies that are going to premiere in Sundance. Oh, wow, that sounds great. Now, this year's festival's in person, so it's the first time since January 2020. So audiences will finally be able to see Sundance movies in theaters rather than on their laptops. So is there a Sundance movie from last year's virtual festival that could do as well in this year's Oscars as CODA did from last year? Probably not among narrative films, but there are several documentary features that premiered at Sundance a year ago that I think are very likely to be named when the Oscar nominations come out next Tuesday. Yes, next Tuesday, right around the corner. Uh, those include Fire of Love, Descendant, and All That Breathes. So let's see if I'm right about those Sundance alumni being nominated for a documentary feature next week. Well, it does lead to a lot of awards, but, but why else do you consider Sundance to be important? 
Well, I think it's even more important now than it has been, given that smart adult dramas are dying a rapid death at the box office. And it's important not only to showcase the best work made outside the studio system, but also Sundance is there to make sure these films get an audience. Coda is a great example. So it went to the festival two years ago without a distributor. The movie could have played at Sundance and nowhere else. But of course it didn't because it's really good. Apple TV uh, Plus bought it for no small sum and released it. So more than anything else, Sundance is a very important market for independently produced films. And it's where movies like Little Miss Sunshine, The Big Sick, Napoleon Dynamite, Blair Witch Project, all premiered, went there without a distributor, were bought and went on to greater glory. What films are you excited to see this year? Um, it's a very long list, and it's very hard to pick You know where you're going to be at any given time because you always have about four or five choices at the same moment. Uh, I'm interested in a dramatic competition film called Theater Camp from star, writer, and producer Ben Platt. I saw him on Broadway in Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, this is a pet project of his. There's a movie called Passages from a director I'm very fond of named Ira Sachs. Uh, a movie, a drama, dramatic premiere called The Pod Generation, starring one of my favorite actors, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Uh, a documentary called Beyond Utopia, which follows families trying to flee North Korea. Flora and Son is a move from John Carney. He made a film called Once, you might remember, and then uh, a dramatic competition film named Jonathan Majors. You're going to hear a lot about Jonathan Majors coming up. And then a documentary about Cher Height, who wrote The Height Report, called The Disappearance of Cher Height, a very controversial book when it came out. And I think Cher Height was not remembered well by history, even though she made a very important contribution to women's sexuality. Wow, that's just amazing. Well, that theater camp does sound like a lot of it's fun. It's my kind of movie. Thanks, John. My pleasure, Sharon. Coming up after the break, they come from Mexico, but have made it in Hollywood, often known as the Three Amigos, Alfonso Cuaron, Alejandro gonzalez Inarritu, and Guillermo del Toro. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. It was Netflix that brought them together the night I spoke with them earlier this month, but Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, and Alejandro González Iñárritu have known each other for a long time. Del Toro and Cuaron met each other first in the 90s when Cuaron was working in television in Mexico, and Cuaron and Iñárritu met through cinematographer Emmanuel Lubeski. You'll hear him referred to by his nickname, Chivo, in this chat. 
Del Toro and Inyaratu both made films with Netflix this year, Pinocchio and Bardo, respectively. Alfonso Cuaron's Oscar-winning 2019 film, Roma, was also a Netflix film. So it was at a ticketed event put on by the streamer at the Academy Museum that I spoke with the three filmmakers ahead of their public conversation. And just to note, I was enjoying listening so much that I forgot to ask Alfonso to hand my mic back to me a couple of times. We've boosted the volume as much as we could in those spots, but just a heads up. And another note, after my first question, you'll hear from Guillermo, then Alejandro, and Alfonso last. What worries you and what gives you hope about the state of movie going and storytelling more broadly? You know, I, I think that worry uh, comes from the evolution of stories that it, the culture starts passing you and you need to, you start worrying about things that seem logical to you from your generation's point of view. So nothing worries me in that sense. And what gives me hope is that people are starting to to really emerge with new voices and with new proposals and, and daring proposals, that gives me a lot of hope, like to see new movies that are trying different ways of telling a story, you know, new, new rhythms uh, and, and, and new ways of uh, seeing cinema not just holding itself to the Aristotelian three-act structure, but playing with that. Yeah, I, I think as Guillermo, I'm not worried, but I think the only concern will be that the technical aspect of the different ways the people is experiencing now uh, films will affect the ideas behind. You know, what I'm saying, I think that I think the biggest thing that we should be aware as filmmakers, because I think we cannot control the technology, we cannot control the 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 habits of the world audiences uh, that's something that is out of control of anybody's hand uh, uh, technological things will be keep moving with or without consent but i think uh, nobody should be surrendered to them and put ideas on that side subordinated to them i think if the ideas keep being uh, thoughtful brightness and deep powerful no matter which media you will, they will get through, the ideas will survive. The only other tools always will be evolving, not even ending. So we'll be seeing a, an evolutionary thing. So the ideas has to be king. I think that will be the concern that suddenly we, we, we change the order of the importance of things. You know? uh, I, in terms of, of worries I, or concerns, I, I, don't, I don't have so much worry, but as I'm curious. I'm curious because we're living a very specific time in cinema in which the paradigms are changing. And they are changing. It's such a big shift. What is happening now is as big as at the end of the 20s, the shift between silent film and talkies. And uh, I'm really, really intrigued to see how what is going to happen after. I hope that I get to see that. Uh, but in the other hand, the hope is that you know, we've been blessed to have amazing masters before us and 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 to have a great generation of, of other peers around us and that the new generations they are offering amazing cinema. So there's there's plenty of amazing films that inspire you. So uh, I think that film will keep on even with any change of paradigm, filmmakers will always find its way to create great cinema. 
So there were a lot of really good movies that opened theatrically last year that basically nobody saw. Tar, She Said, Women Talking, Till Among Them. Instead, it's just the rich getting richer. So last year, little quiz of the top 10 movies at the box office last year, how many were sequels? 10. 10. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Wow. So what does that, but, so what does that say? But look, uh, let, let's, let's take it one step at a time because if you go back to classical Hollywood and you see the five sequels to the Thin Man movies or the Gold Diggers 33, Gold Diggers 34, like uh, sequels and, and remakes and all that is not the problem. The problem, I think, is that uh, the popular entertainment is confused with the importance of a movie, I think. I think that there are many movies that come out where they, they need theatrical size of ideas uh, and they need to land in a certain way to be considered important or permanent. I don't know. I think that uh, the depth of the connection of some of those movies uh, is not about box office. I, I don't think so. I think the industry tends to see it that way. But some of those movies are very important culturally for me. And not, not only that, is some of those movies, yeah, you're talking about they, 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 that they lasted very a very short time in the theatrical uh, release. But most of the films that you mentioned, these, these, these specific films, they're going to have long lives. And they yeah. will keep on, there will be experience in the decades to come. While some of those other uh, films that made so much money, that, that was the end of it. That was the end of their lives. I'm not saying all of them, but many of them. So we don't know about what is going to really uh, endure. And I think that that's important aspect of cinema. Posterity will play a joke on everyone. And, and the reality for me, having been one of the movies that was released on the week of Omicron and Spider-Man. Same, same weekend, Nightmare Alley was Omicron, which annihilated the, the adult audience, and Spider-Man, which just destroyed at the box office. I still love that movie. And if it takes 10, 20 years for it to find its audience, I'm really okay with that. Now, as an industry, the other things are going to uh, keep stomping uh, the, the same ground. I'm more worried about uh, the coincidence of uh, how it will affect a generation that grew up with that as a norm. That I cannot calculate because we grew up in, in 60s and 70s where the norm was a variety of movies. Now we have a generation coming up that grew up with sequels and franchises almost exclusively. Yes, but by the same token, a generation that is exposed to an amazing amount of, of cinema in other areas. worldwide. Yeah. You know, in an, in in other formats. Yeah, on TV or on computer, on that's what I mean. Is we cannot calculate that. But I, I think we cannot we cannot uh, uh, in a way disagree with what John is saying. I agree in a way that it's tragic that these other films has not been experienced in the big format as they should. So, I mean that all the world cannot share that excitement at the times when you see a great movie in a great format and everybody's talking. That was incredible. The the cultural impact is different than when it doesn't happen. But I agree with Alfonso that the films will survive for decades and years, and they will be experienced. So, in a way, it's not black and white. Now, 
can we control that the people will not stop seeing films in the iPads, in computers, in TV, no. in phones? No, we can't control that. What we can control, I again make the point, is we just have to make sure as filmmakers that the idea is not the size of an iPhone. <laughs> the idea has to be as big as a big screen. And then the other thing, it's going to be about the, the decision that the people will take. And lastly, I will say that I always kind of make a, a parallel with music industry. You know, before you can see only a, a classical or a concert in a music hall, and then it came the gramophone, and then it came the radio, and then it came the Walkman, and then now in our devices, in our headset. And now what I'm saying is the amount of music that is produced now is incredible contemporary classic music, jazz, hip-hop, and some of that music, it belongs, and people just listen in, in their houses, and sometimes you go to a concert. So what I'm saying, the choices are incredible. Now, what are the most successful and and, and blockbuster albums, the most commercial ones, yeah. but incredible music is available in everything that you want to do. So I think that's going to be the way for film. Unfortunately, because I share with you that it's incredible tragic that the great films are not shown in the but, big But John, and, uh, and, and, uh, and I think that the other thing is, I think the coin is flipping in the air. And is, is look, look, we are in a decade where streaming came to maturity, it coincided with a massive world epidemic. We cannot know where the coin is going to land, if it's going to be heads or tails this year or next year. It'll take a decade to know where we're going. You all have made movies for Netflix, uh, Roma, Bardo, and Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Yep. But we're starting to see belt tightening among all the streamers. Warner Brothers Discovery is taking old content off its streaming sites yeah. as part of deep cost-cutting measures. Disney has lost $8 billion on streaming, $4 billion in the last year alone. Netflix says its new mandate is bigger, better, fewer. Mm -hmm. Does that concern you? Well, what do you, I mean, I think uh, studios behave like studios. I mean, they demolished the Phantom of the Opera stage to do the Transformers right. It's not exactly like where the mendacity has started only now. The mendacity existed in the 30s, and the 40s, and the 50s. But uh, I think that if you only do studio movies, then you are only concerned about studio politics. But if you are a lot more malleable and you can work outside of that, you, you can and should. Yeah, the, the, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. The thing is that this is not the first time that this happens. No. This has happened no, in the will past. The and, last. And, yeah. And, and, and sometimes in cinema has proven to come in waves. And uh, th there are these periods in which only, uh, it's only about action films. And there was no room for anything that was not an action film or a romantic comedy. Yeah. And then the 90s came with an ama amazing flourishing of the indie cinema. Uh, and and then again the the indie starts to fade away while other things come up. I'm less concerned about that than about the development of the cinematic language. Yeah, you know which which are the new routes that cinema is going to take, and and that's 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 up to the filmmakers. And yes, of course we all dream of this beautiful ideal scenario in which our films last for weeks and weeks and weeks in a cinema and a theater, but also we have to recognize where we are at. And, you know, I, I just want to dream that eventually also 
there's going to be a business that are going to find the need of audiences to go to see yeah. this other cinema in smaller theaters, maybe. I mean, in 2004, uh, when we were trying to do, uh, after Blade Two, and we were doing Hellboy, superhero movies were no-no. Now, the, the reality of the culture is a really promiscuous clash between what the studios think they want, what they're going to want, and what the culture wants. And it's a sweaty, horrible clash of wills that nobody can predict. They may say whatever they want. What they'll do may be something different. I think the tragedy of the film is, or the, you know, what we do is that it's an art form and it's a business. And yeah. that's the tragedy. That's when that relies the tragedy of what we do is that. And I think since Wall Street came in, and now corporations and the quarterly kind of things for the guys that invest money, those are the kings. And obviously the studios are serving just that and giving the people just what they want. That's a populist kind of approach. And then people will be, in a way, not getting what they maybe didn't know. They don't know that they will love that. And if everybody's just doing what people supposedly want, we will find an end. But I think there's room, and that's the paradox, I think, for me. The contradiction is that Roma could have not been made without a streaming service. Yeah, Bardo, Pinocchio. Bardo will have never been done. Nobody in this town, I can yeah. have a lot of Oscars, you know, but you know, doesn't matter. Nobody wants to make Bardo. And Pinocchio okay? was passed by every studio so, in town. So that's what I'm saying. The, the, the irony and the paradox is that these streamers sometimes, I put it, they are putting gems in the screen and a lot of other things that I don't, I don't share. But without those opportunities, a lot of filmmakers will not be shooting now. In Mexico, 70% of the filmmakers I do are doing things with streamers, with everybody. What I'm saying is there's something that is now evolving to, I don't know what will be the end, but there's a very difficult time ahead to find out exactly. And again, the point is what Alfonso was saying, the language, if we subordinate the film to the TV language, the people will not have a reason to go to cinema. Yeah. If we make, let me put it this way, to put a film in a screen, in an IMAX, doesn't make it a good film. Doesn't it doesn't make, make it a film. I, I have film. seen yeah. things in my computer that are masterpieces that they never had a chance, and I enjoy that more, that a piece of shit in IMAX. So let's not confuse the, the, the conversation in the format. That's what I'm saying. Let's talk about cinema and what filmmakers can do. It's the size of the idea, ideas. not the size of the screen. Exactly. You know? The yeah. size of the idea, not the size yeah. of the of The, of the, of the, the library screen. system. <laughs> you know, I think that's the dictatorship of the corporations has existed since, since the no, first time the in beginning. the film. Since the beginning. And it's funny because we're having this conversation that happens to be very, a very American conversation. And it has to be more specific American media conversation that it exists also in in the UK and pro, I don't know in in, mm -hmm. in Australia. Yeah. Uh, this conversation in which when we talk about cinema, we end up talking about the business, the business, the yeah. business which, which and, is not and the only cinema that exists. That, but that is also exactly there's a, and that's a, we're talking about commercial cinema when cinema is way broader the conversation in other countries tends to be about the films themselves yeah. and about what the film is bringing or not bringing is about many other things yeah. is i think that 
the conversation has drifted too far into into, into, this, into business this and then and, and and into the industry and business and then before cinema used to be part of the cultural conversation now cinema has become part of at least in the US part of the business conversation mm -hmm. can i make a, a, a parallel is about if we talk about coffee and we end up about about the profit of of of, of starbucks yes starbucks yeah but coffee is a much it's a culture that is lived in many different ways around the world in different environments in italy <laughs> exactly no coffee. we can have a passion i think about coffee and the flavor and the, if it's african colombia but when we talk about only about the obsession of starbucks then we are reducing the whole possibilities, I think. Coming up after the break, we'll pick up where we left off with Mexican filmmakers Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, and Alejandro Gonzalez in the attitude. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. Now let's get back to my conversation with filmmakers Alfonso Cuaron, Alejandro González Iñárritu, and Guillermo del Toro. You'll hear Guillermo reference Cha Cha Cha. That's the production company the three started together in 2007. I want to ask you about collaboration and about when you're working with one another, how do you make sure that you are helping that other person make the best version of his film and not the best version of what you think his film should be? We, we never we never would do that. I mean, we, no. That's no. a good question. That's a very good, a very good question. For me, it's a good question. I mean, I, uh, every time we are, we know the three of us are stubborn, but we know also that if, if there's a point where, where you the other won't see a point, even if you think you're right, it's not his point. And I don't think we've ever uh, really. No, but it, uh, even in the in the in the occasions that that could happen, it's very different because we know each other so well. Yeah. That I know the tendencies of Guillermo, yes. the tendencies <laughs> of Alejandro. I'm sure they know my tendencies of what I like or how I would do things. Yeah. So we understand where the other person is coming from, and the important thing is to understand what is behind the approach what is the essence of the of the suggestion and we rarely say i told you so 
rarely. Uh, <laughs> I, between the two of you, I, I don't know. Between the rarely. two of you, that happens more often. It does, but, it does. Yeah. Well, no. But, <laughs> but, but, but I think that there's three Guillermo levels. Guillermo could have done a masterpiece. If he, would, if he yes. should have listened to me, yes. maybe he will have maybe a good masterpiece. masterpiece. No, but, but like we, we have three conversations. One before the movie is made. Yes. One after the movie is made and one after the movie is released. And in the three, there are very different needs. And I, but I think that we know each other very well. They have warned me. Both of them have warned me when I'm about to make a mistake and I go ahead and make it. And, and I know they know and I know. <laughs> Everybody knows we know. What's an example? I can't. <laughs> I can't. But, but, no, no. But... but, but uh, I think that what we can be is brutal and honest and well-intentioned. That's it. I mean, when we had the company, cha-cha-cha, and we, one of the best decisions we made was to close it. Why? Because we, we realized if we keep going this way, we're going to just... It's like it's very cool to have a pet dragon, but you got to keep feeding it every day. And we said, this is going to end no, the friendship. I tell you, yeah. is that we are used to have certain kind of conversation that is mostly about life and then about cinema. Not business. And... We found that every time we talked to each other was just about business and we would try to talk to each other because we, we have to sort this mm -hmm. stuff out from management of the whole situation. Yeah, and joy, so it was, the joy was gone. The joy was gone. That and, that, and the, that and the fact that Alejandro took longer to come up with the goddamn logo of the company than the, <laughs> than the company lasted. No, we, but you know, we had it in one movie and then we closed. No, but you know, what, what I think is, is very interesting, what you said is that that line between when you think that you are given a good advice and then, as, as Guillermo said, sometimes the advice that you gave end up being the good advice and then you have to commit your mistakes and learn from them. But sometimes, sometimes you think that you have a good advice and then you were wrong and that's beautiful. I remember once I visited you in Gravity and I visited the set. And you and Chivo were trying to figure out there was this moment that Sandra Bullock was kind of with, with Arnest flying in the, in the rocket in the studio. And there was this very complicated movement. I think you were shooting when the drop of the water was in and the camera was moving and the crane and the Arnest was not working and the camera was getting into the Arnest and Sandra's movement was super uncomfortable to make. Was blah, 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 blah. And it was a one shot, obviously, super complicated. And I was there and I said to Alfonso, you know, have you considered maybe to cover a little bit from this angle and just cover your ass in order that if you don't get a blah, blah. And he said, no, no, no. And I said, cabron, just do it just, just for your sanity, just to have it in. And he said, no, if I do it, I know that I will use it and I don't want to use it. So I don't want to even give me that. And I, and I went out there very wary. I said, it's one of those things that you, as a friend, said, oh, my God. And he fucking nailed it. And it yeah. would have been, if he would have heard me, I, I, I would have given a bad advice because he knew what he was doing. Yeah. So his stubbornness come from a vision yeah. and not from a bad idea. So it, it, for me, it was more like a cowardly yeah. kind of thing to protect this guy. You know, that's a classic example. There is artistic advice and there is emotional advice. And artistic is like the, you know, how the movie's going to get made, or you're saying to Alfonso, you should cover it this way. Emotional is like when something doesn't go well or you're in a dark place, you don't think your movie's working. How much would you say your collaboration, your partnership, your friendship is also that part that you're helping each other? when somebody's not feeling good. Like you're, you can lift somebody up and talk to them about 
what is working rather than just get into the details of a shot that you can actually emotionally support each other oh, yeah. when you're not feeling good. Well, filmmakers mostly talk about films, but even if a film goes wrong, we, we try to contextualize it in a beautiful way, but we share family stories. Yeah, but we it's share. most most of it. I mean, even if, if when we talk about film, there's the always the the, the aspect of yes, uh, the screenplay and then the editing and notes and whatever. But a lot, I think that more of mo most of our conversations are, are about our state of being while we're doing something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like how how we're dealing with situations. Yeah, and, uh, and we've all been through rough stuff, all of us. In this in this 16 years, no, I think I think the the, the privilege and the, the the blessing side of this friendship, uh, John, is that we have a very privileged job. Obviously, we are very privileged men in that sense, but at the same time, this job is not easy. It's very risky and it's very lonely. So to share and walk with somebody in tough times and good times, to when somebody's success is your success and somebody's failure is mm -hmm. your failure, mm -hmm. and you share that. Honestly, that's something that I think very few people can say it truly. And because we understand where we are sitting at and we come from another country, uh, we are not, we don't belong in that sense truly from here. We just, be, in a way, there's a lot of things that unite us in our past. Yeah. I think that make it even more strong because if you will be Australian or American, whatever, but we share a past mm -hmm. and a point of view. So I think to share failure with somebody make it much more easier. And, and success. That, that, that's the beauty of the friendship, you know. Very last question. If you are, and I know none of you are, a professional figure skater, when you are not competing, you're working every day with a coach. And that coach is helping you perfect your art. There's no equivalent for filmmaking, I don't think. I don't think there's an equivalent for novelists, maybe for composers. So... When you think about how do you stay sharp, how do you get inspired, where do you look for inspiration, what would you say those things are? For me, it's napping. <laughs> for me, it's watching movies. For me, is just honestly, just uh, be literally aware that life is passing. I was telling that just the last 15 days, you suddenly realize that the sky is blue and the, the, the clouds are kind of white and you have a hot tea in your hands and suddenly that kind of being present uh, uh, not intellectually engaged necessarily with something but just observing things happening in your body your emotions and obviously the things that happen i think those always for me are the moments that in that space in that silence in that non-action is when something comes so, i mean I, I really look for those moments which are the most precious for me you know alfonso yeah, it's similar in the, in the sense that, as Guillermo says, definitely watching films is always very inspiring. But the bottom line is, is life. It, the, the, I, I guess that um, if we do this, at that particular, I guess that the kind of films that Alejandro, Guillermo, and I would do, we need to be completely, not only committed, like from a standpoint of time, but very emotionally involved. And in order to do that, it needs to kind of convey our state of being on life. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's more about uh, a life process. Because I, I, and, and that's interesting because a lot of what we talk about when we complete a film, uh, either it's successful or it's a failure, 
is about the impact in our lives and what in many ways the lessons that we take we can take out of the experience i agree and just lastly, I want to say that in my case, I have never been chasing movies. <laughs> no way. Suddenly the movies appear. And then in the last 10 years, at least in the beginning, yes. But now is things appear. And then is how I subordinate that film for my life, how I adapt my life to that film and how the film will be adapted to the life and how that film can project what is true to me in my life. And mm -hmm. the extreme case is Bardo. So Bardo is the end of that process, I think. No, for, for me, it, it is the, the thing that I notice is that I am more me the older I get in terms of the language I use, the, the solutions I do, and how the movies matter or reveal who I am. And they become deeply biographical. It's so strange, but Pinocchio is as biographical as I can get is he did Roma, he did Bardo, I did Pinocchio, and they are ultimately biographical in a very oblique way, all of them, all of them. Yep. Yeah, and very biographical. And, and, you know, Pinocchio takes 15 years to get made. I know. And, and not, the fact that we don't give up, we still don't give up, that is, uh, that is how you stay sharp. Do you still want to make them? Yes. Do you still want to make them about what hurts? Yes. Then you 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 have a coach, <laughs> torture. <laughs> Cabrones, hasta la próxima vez. Muchas gracias por el tiempo. Bye bye, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.